Good morning and welcome to this week's Market Thinkers discussion. This week I'm joined by my business partner Drew Meredith and Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital. Hi Drew. Hi Chris. Hi Jamie. Every week we bring insights from portfolio managers, CEOs, thought leaders and investment experts in the attempt to bring the investor, you, closer to the coalface. It's very much what Drew and I and our team see every day. First, for the listeners, Waddle Partners is a fee-for-service-based, uh, fee-for-service wealth management firm based in Melbourne. Um, as the name suggests, we manage money for individuals, mums and dads, superannuation, trusts, foundations, um, and various other pools of capital. We tailor portfolio construction to the client's risk appetite, return objective, and any overlays like ESG. The origins of our firm date back to 1973 when uh, Austin Donnelly founded this group. He was really an advocate for investor rights and what we think was the first fee-for-service independent financial planning firm in Australia with dealer's licence number one in Queensland. In this session, we're happy to welcome Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital, a specialist cash and fixed income manager in Australia. He runs the Smarter Money suite of funds and is well known for his column in the AFR. We've known Chris for over five years now, um, and uh, his venture has been in funds management has been super successful. We first met Chris um, when, when he only managed $150 million. I think he now manages close to $4 billion. Uh, inspirational story on its own. Um, this Today, we will uh, talk about a lot of things. We'll talk about Chris's funds. We'll talk about the outlook for property. We'll talk about the outlook for the economy. Um, just the format, just for anyone that hasn't joined us before, uh, Drew will talk about why Smarter Money Funds have been included in our model portfolio and where they fit. We'll then ask Chris 10 quick fire questions to, to, to lighten the mood of the session. And then we'll get into Q&A where we cover the points that I mentioned before. Drew? Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, I think the best place to start is why we added uh, Coolabar and Smarter Money. So Coolabar is the, I guess, the asset management group and Smarter Money are the products. Uh, basically, we've with interest rates zero, dividend cuts going on everywhere. And this was two or three, three or four years ago, even five years ago. Uh, we need to, to get the most out of our clients' cash holdings um, and people were either being forced to take on more risks, so go into less lower quality assets, or accept lower incomes. We think Smarter Money sits in between where Chris's team basically via active management are able to deliver much better returns than, than uh, you know, the income that you can get from a government or other bond. Um, I know most people probably think holding cash or an active cash just means putting money in the bank or Rabo Direct. But as Chris will explain, it's, uh, it's part of that, but there's a lot, a lot more very short-term low-risk assets that can be used. And the big the big thing we like uh, have liked about Coolabar is, as as Chris will also go into detail, is um, they just stand out with their ability to collate, prepare, and analyze data on everything from bond prices to the pandemic, um, which is probably the more one of the more interesting reads over the last six months, particularly for us in Victoria. We're pretty hopeful. So welcome, Chris, uh, and I think Jamie's going to shoot those questions at you. Thanks, guys. All right, Chris, it's uh, 10 questions, quick fire answers as much as you can. We'll start now. What is the best investment you've ever bought? Uh, maybe maybe uh, Coolabar. Yeah, I think Coolabar, starting Coolabar was probably number one. Buying a house was number two. Uh, in, but, in Sydney. <laughs> uh, in Sydney, yeah, that's right. Um, 
but you know, I started Coolbar in uh, 2011. We're now running over $4.4 billion. I have a team of 25 guys, 13 analysts, five portfolio managers spread across London, Sydney, and Melbourne. Uh, I love my job. <clears throat> I want to do it forever. So definitely uh, uh, running my own business, but also managing money has been uh, the most fulfilling investment. So what's your biggest investment regret, Chris? <clears throat> oh, to be honest, I mean, right now, contemporaneously, um, I kind of feel that I had, a, I had a call with a client of mine, um, <clears throat> a very, very large family office in March, and he brought together his top fund managers globally, and they said, what do you think the best investment will be over the next one to two years? And my response was 10 times levered residential real estate. Yeah. <laughs> That's starting to play out big time. Um, if I had more time on my hands, uh, I would have liked to have bought some more resi property. Um, so that's, that's probably the, the most relevant recent, uh, regret, but otherwise I don't think I have too many regrets. Notwithstanding that you're always learning and iterating, uh, and educating yourself and your team. Uh, and, you know, I often use the analogy. I feel like we're a kind of, uh, I'll use an AFL, um, uh, example, but I feel like we're probably a, a 24 year old or 25 year old, um, <clears throat> AFL player that's you know constantly maturing and evolving as they get the benefit of new experiences. Got it. What is the one red flag for any any investment? Um, yeah, I think in relation to management, I think if there's ever a disconnect, a disconnect between uh, practice and reality and communications and perceptions. That's a huge issue for us. Um, specifically in the bond market, um, you know, we are very, very concerned about where we see a conflict of interest between management, which tend to be dominated by shareholders. So yep. executives are often uh, <clears throat> large shareholders in the business and creditors. So a bank is a classic example. Um, you know, CBA's balance sheet has about probably six to 8% equity and about 92% debt. And we often over the years um, with banks have seen big conflicts of interest between what management wants to do as a shareholder. And often that involves take involves taking uh, high risk bets, expanding into Asia, buying non-core businesses, um, running excessively risky lending practices and the interests of creditors or uh, the owners of debt. So that in the case of a bank uh, could involve depositors and bondholders uh, higher up the capital stack. So I'm very, very focused when we're investing on looking for management teams that are in turn focused on an alignment of interests and that consistently under promise and over deliver, um, but also management that isn't dysfunctional um, in, in the context of, uh, yeah, the, the sometimes conflicting interests of debt and equity. I think this is going to be the longest 10 quick fire questions we've ever gone, but that, I'm going to ask you a question on that point. Do, as a debt, debt manager versus an equity manager, do you see management through a different lens? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and we often battle management because we're massively activist. So we're, we're heavily engaged with CEOs, CFOs, treasurers. Uh, I'm sure if anyone 
any of them are watching this right now, they, they will have a quiet chuckle because they know that I harass them regularly. <laughs> um, and if we, we, we kind of, uh, I guess we're very intense individuals and we're very aggressive and assertive in protecting our investors' interests. Yep. Uh, and basically we like our credits, that means our companies, to behave in the best interests of creditors. Um, so, yeah. And, and having the, the media per se on your side, e.g. writing a column once or twice in the AFR, does that help you with your persuasion, persuasion of your views? Um, it certainly provides a platform, but I think a lot of fund managers, I mean, the AFR uh, runs uh, columns from lots of fund managers and it's quite common around the world for fund managers yeah. to write columns in um, newspapers. You know, Roger Montgomery um, uh, is, is an example, I think, at the Australian uh, as an equity manager. But I should say, you guys probably don't know this, we do actually run some equities. So we run for a super fund, what is called a full capital structure mandate, where I can invest in the, the cash deposits of a company, their senior bonds, their subordinated bonds, their hybrids, and their equities. Now, in that particular mandate, we own ANZ, NAB, and Westpac equity. So we bought their shares one to two months ago, and, and they've performed really well since. Um, so we see that as a situation where there's a... Um, coincidence of interest uh, across the capital stack. Um, but it's interesting, like across that capital stru structure right now, for example, we used to own lots of the major bank senior bonds, but we regard them as being very expensive. So we've actually sold 2.24 billion of their senior uh, and we don't hold much of their cash, but we do own their subordinated bonds, hybrids and equity. It's a really interesting mandate. Was that designed by the super fund that came to you or is that one of your ideas? Yeah, this super fund, I can't name them, but um, they are... Uh, the best performing super fund in Australia over one, two, three, four, five years in fixed income. And uh, according to the super rating survey, uh, they're super, very, yeah. very creative uh, <laughs> and really ingenious guys um, and uh, crazy smart, very tough. Uh, I call one of them the great white shark because every time I talk to him, it feels like he's going to rip a limb off me. Um, <laughs> but these guys, uh, they, they tend to have a very, uh, uh, not, adversarial is the wrong way, but they're very tough on their fund managers. Um, but they've been very, very good clients to us. And they came to us and said, listen, you guys trade the full capital structure so well. You know, you dominate the market. We're the most active trader in Australia in bank senior bonds, bank subordinated bonds and bank hybrids. Why wouldn't you go one notch down the capital stack into bank equities <coughs> if you see an opportunity? And that's what we've done. Um, they've given us a very, very uh, high return target on that mandate. So I've got to beat the government, 10-year government bond yield plus 11%. I love it. That's my return target. Uh, Isn't equity I, premium normally seven? Is it eleven? Yeah, cents. I think the last hundred years the Aussie <laughs> equity risk premium over ten-year government bonds has been between five and a half uh, to six and a half percent. So that's uh, yeah, a really punitively uh, uh, ambitious mandate from my perspective. But I can say that since inception we have beaten that mandate. Uh, we're up four and a half percent in this month alone in that particular portfolio. Mm -hmm. um, so listen, it's not something that I want to do regularly, but we did see an opportunity when the four major, or three of the four major banks were trading at about 0.8 times book value mm -hmm. um, uh, one or two months ago. And we thought they'd over-provision for bad debts. We thought the, we'll talk about this later, we thought the housing cycle would be much uh, more resilient than almost everybody. Um, and we thought they'd be writing, down those, writing um, back those uh, uh, bad debt provisions and... Um, they would normalise their dividend payments more quickly than the market expected. And generally, the Aussie macro environment would be much better than expected. Uh, you know, we forecast that the jobless rate would be 6 to 7% relatively quickly. It's right now 69 
you know, everyone else was at around 10% and bank stocks have started to perform. So that's why one reason why their portfolio is doing well. Well, they got bullied into it, didn't they? They're bullied by, by, uh, by everyone to cut that. Listen, dividend. as a creditor, so this is a good example uh, of what we were talking about earlier. So I was 100% on side with APRA um, in terms of uh, more or less... Bullied by you too. <laughs> exercising moral suasion to convince the banks not to pay dividends. Yep. Because that protects creditors. It's not great for shareholders, but they build up their capital. Yep. And they build up their first loss reserve. So that's really good for me and my investors. Um, but it's also the prudent thing to do in the first recession since 1991. Mm. You don't want banks kind of flushing out their first loss reserves at the same time that bad debts are going through the roof. Or um, raising capital just to pay dividends. Yeah, or raising capital to pay dividends, as we kind of saw in one case. Um, uh, all right, all right let's, is- let's get to the next one. Drew, hold your question. <laughs> and just, you, have only, you only can pick one here. Best investment for Armageddon, USD, Bitcoin, government bonds or gold? Gold. The, the words of advice, the best words of advice you've ever been given by anyone? Had the opportunity when I was studying for a PhD at Cambridge University, uh, some of my haters out there, I do have a few haters who hate me saying this. We all do, mate. Don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they hate it when I reference this. But, um, but I, I got a letter from um, the former Nobel Peace Prize winner, Henry Kissinger, the former US Secretary of State, um, who said when I was next to the US, drop by. So I went and uh, sat down with him for about an hour and uh, he was super interesting. I think I was 25 at the time. And I said, listen, what would be, my exact words were, what would be your advice to a 25-year-old Henry Kissinger? And he basically said, don't make any long-term plans. He said that uh, when a, you know, in that baritone, sort of very distinctive voice of his, uh, when he was at, ha- uh, at Harvard doing a PhD, all of his contemporaries had these grand five-year plans. He said, what you really want to do is just, uh, in the words of um, another person I spent a bit of time with, Malcolm Turnbull, you want to capitalise on chaos. Um, and, and really just capitalise. And what do you mean by that? I don't think you used those exact words, but what he said was you want to capitalise on every opportunity as mm. and when it arrives, really ruthlessly and relentlessly. He did say to me, which I think, I think was an interesting remark, he said, whilst you're young, make a name for yourself intellectually and, um, and then just optimise. And that's actually, you know, we're big believers in, in our portfolios and exploiting short-term mispricings um, and getting... I'm a big believer in getting the, the short term right and chaining that together over the medium and long term. I do think that people who think that they can forecast in the long run uh, are absolutely misguided because uncertainty grows with time. Mm. It's much easier for me to predict where you guys will be in the next 30 minutes. You're going to be on the Zoom call as opposed to the next 30 hours. I have absolutely no idea where you'll be in 30 hours. And that's true of also investing. Probably on another Zoom call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and the last question. Uh, in a world that lacks leadership, who's the most inspirational leader at the moment? Most inspirational leader right now. Listen. You can I mean, pass. A, we're, we're, pass. We're from Victoria too, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, I sympathise with your plight. <laughs> but, but the good news is he's seen the light and uh, hopefully you guys are coming out of lockdown. Uh, in a, a fast way. Yeah, but um, listen, I, I, it's hard for me to say who's the most inspirational leader. The one thing I will say, and this is, um, you know, just speaking from personal experience. Trump. The person uh, <laughs> that, or the, the group of individuals that I'm, I'm most interested in right now are um, NFL coaches. I think the NFL is a really strategic sport. 
um, and they have a really complex optimization problem to solve. Um, they've got these incredibly talented athletes. They've got very high attrition rates. Um, they've got this real large dependency on one particular player, which is the quarterback. Um, and it's something I've got interested in over the last year or two. And I think that the, the complexity of the game planning around NFL plays at the same time as needing to motivate very, very large teams of, you know, presumably, uh, you know, fickle, fickle and frisky, frisky sort of, uh, you know, 20-something athletes is just interesting. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking into the sporting domain right now for yep. inspiration for myself. I guess they have very specific roles in NFL too, don't they? So it's, yeah, building a team of many moving parts, but ultimately rely on one or two. Yeah, and the, the complexity embedded into the game planning is quite breathtaking. Mm. Um, and uh, and I see actually strong analogies with investments and also my team. So I've got 25 guys uh, and there are really interesting parallels. I've got lots of, like I've got 10 engineers, mathematicians and physicists in my 25 person team. Four of those guys have got PhDs. Two of them have got university medals. Um, so we've got like five data scientists and five credit researchers and a chief macro strategist. And then I've got portfolio managers in Sydney, Melbourne, London, uh, actually Sydney and London, uh, the PMs are. Um, but you know, those guys are also very quantitative and managing that group um, to maximize uh, the performance of the team is a really interesting day-to-day challenge. Um, you know, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, we're an incredibly harmonious sort of egalitarian team it's a very flat structure but but i think it's fascinating the human condition I mean, people generally i mean i'm not a huge fan of people generally frankly um like i find <laughs> dealing with people um generally a uh, a bit of a challenge and uh, i like spending a lot of time thinking um by myself i'm a, a bit of a i guess a lone wolf in that regard but but um my team's like a family and and just managing their team's a, uh, a really um, enjoyable experience, but I do see analogies with uh, NFL coaches. Everyone has a playbook on their arm walking around the office or, or not quite at that level yet? Um, well, I actually like to think of our team as an integrated neural network. So you've got 25 brains that are networked yeah. and we try and maximize information flow. So we have you know, 10 to 20 calls a day I'm speaking to them on weekends. You know, I was speaking to one of my data science, scientists at 10.30 last night. I was speaking to my PM in London at you know, 9.30 last night. We had our 8 a.m. call this morning. But for us, the market is such a big beast. The financial markets are such a formidable adversary. Mm. It's very hard to beat markets as mm. a manager. Very, very hard. Um, I'm lucky because I, I, I work in a very inefficient market, which is over-the-counter credit or OTC physical bonds. Um, the equities market is like probably orders of magnitude more efficient and therefore difficult to get alpha or excess returns out of on a risk adjusted basis. But our job is to use those 25 brains to um, effectively vacuum up as much insight and information as possible, to synthesize it as quickly as possible, to still it down and then make decisions as rapidly as possible. And, and doing that is kind of, it's a constant iterative process where you know, you're constantly tweaking different parts of the network, repositioning them, trying to optimize them, plugging in new new, new brains. So we've just hired a chief macro strategist, Kieran Davies, who was a chief economist at NAB, Barclays, Abin Amro, and, and he was also head of forecasting at the Commonwealth Treasury for the purposes of the, the government's budget. And uh, so, you know, that's a new capability that we've plugged in. And so now I'm thinking about, well, how do I monetize that? 
Um, and he's actually just published two new research reports that are on our website. Um, and those research reports are examples of you know, the way in which we're trying to leverage his insight and plug his brain into my brain. We might move into the questions. Um, so we thought uh, we use all three of your retail wholesale funds. So the cash fund, higher income, and the long short credit that we have in our um, defensive alternatives bucket. So can you just step us through those three products from your perspective and what they do and what they hold um, in kind of a short format? Yeah, I mean, basically we offer, as you mentioned, three uh, core strategies. We have actually a fourth which I'll just touch on quickly, but um, the first is the Smarter Money Fund. That has a target return profile of 1% to 2% per annum above the RBA cash rate. Um, it has typically an average credit rating of you know, A to A+. Plus. To give you know, uh, listeners an example of what that means, is, uh, you know, Suncorp and Macquarie Bank are both rated A+. Plus. Uh, Bendigo and BOQ are rated triple B+, plus, so lower. Um, it offers daily liquidity, uh, typically, it holds about 35% of the portfolio in cash deposits or cash securities and the uh, remaining circa 65% of the portfolio in um, bank-issued bonds that are floating rate, uh, much like a variable rate investment account or deposit. So you can have fixed rate bonds and floating rate bonds. A fixed rate bond is like a, like a five-year term deposit. A floating rate bond is just a, a bond that has a uh, pays an interest rate, of, um, which is a, a, or a spread a, um, that is a margin above a, bench, a benchmark or a proxy for the RBA cash rate, known as the um, bank bill swap rate. And how do you so define we, cash? Is that a, a week maturity, daily rolling money market? Uh, our cash is pretty much all our core deposits. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you've got, again, 35% cash, 65% floating rate notes, average A rating targeting, you know, one to 2% over the cash rate. Um, and historically, I'm just pulling up um, on our website, you can go to the performance tab and, have a look at the historical returns, but in the Insto class, which is a, a publicly available class, historically we've done about 1.6% net of fees above cash. Um, and- uh, Is that daily liquid fund, Chris? Yeah, could... That's right. And in the last 12 months, we've done about 1.3% uh, net above cash. Um, now, obviously and... I've got to attach the usual caveats here. Past performance is no guide to future returns. Please read the PDS to understand the risks. Um, and uh, please take note of all the disclaimers on our website. The second product we run is called the Smarter Money Higher Income Fund. The name's actually a little bit misleading. It's another, it's very similar to the first product. It's rather than taking one to two over the cash rate of targets, one and a half to 3% over the cash rate. Um, historically, uh, it's done, done a bit better than that, about 1.71% over the RBA cash rate. In the last 12 months, it's done better again. It's done about 2.05% over the cash rate. So in the uh, 12 months to 30 September, it's returned 2.5% net of fees. Um, very similar, rather than holding 30% in cash, it holds about 15% in cash. Typically, the rest are floating rate notes or fixed rate bonds hedged to floating. The average credit rating is also in that A band. Um, and uh, yeah, so just less cash, more bonds. There are some other slight differences in the mandates, but again, read the PDS to understand the risks. And the final um, product that we were talking about was the Smarter Money Long Short Fund. Uh, that's quite a different product. That targets... Uh, uh, four to six percent over the RBA cash rate, um, so a much much more aggressive uh, return target. Uh, in the last uh, twelve months, uh, it has returned about three point nine percent net of fees. Obviously, a very volatile twelve months. March, you know, we had this huge one in one hundred year shock uh, where equities were down twenty one percent. 
Um, and that um, is basically a high octane version of the second fund. So it targets 46 over cash. Um, it is also holding um, uh, basically all floating rate notes. So it has no fixed rate bonds, or if it has fixed rate bonds, it hedges out the interest rate risk. The average credit rating is again in that A band. It doesn't hold much cash. So it's basically fully invested in contrast to the first two funds. The other thing that we can do is we can apply some gearing. Uh, so we can gear the portfolio to further improve the returns. Um, basically that, that, that particular uh, product um, you know, competes against high yield bond funds. Another way of looking at all three products is just looking at their current running yield. So right now, the Longshore Credit Fund's running yield is about 5%. The Smarter Money Higher Income uh, Cash Plus 1.5 to uh, 3% strategy running yield is about 2%. And the Smarter Money uh, Strategy uh, uh, running yield, the first fund, which is taking 1% to 2% over cash, its current running yield is 1.6%. So I've got a couple of questions, which is when you put it in cash, do you get the same rate as we do, zero? Or are you able to negotiate a better rate on the cash that you're holding within these yeah, four billion? Yeah, we've, we've definitely been able to negotiate much better rates on our cash. Um, but I would say that, uh, yeah, we, we do have the ability to negotiate, um, but we generally get um, pretty good rates. Um, you know, I would say in the upper quartile of... Um, the rates you would find um, that are that are publicly available. Obviously, we have much more money uh, in our um, in our cash uh, holdings, so we're going to have hundreds of millions of dollars rather than say um, uh, you know uh, five hundred thousand dollars. But to give you a sense of what we're earning on our core cash, at core right now we're earning zero point six three. We don't have much much of our portfolio in our at core cash, but zero point six three. Is obviously a hell of a lot better than 0.25, zero. Um, yeah, which is presumably 0.0. 0. 0. <laughs> like for most of them. I was going to have a, a quick link was to compare, well, basically you, you, you hold only government, semi-government and bank bank debt. Is that, that's correct, isn't it? That's Why? right. I mean, we, we, in those portfolios, we'll generally be mostly focused on bank bonds. Yeah. Um, we do uh, have the ability to, to buy and sell government bonds. So right now, for example, we have uh, about 30% uh, of those portfolios in state government bonds. So AAA rated and AA rated state government bonds, uh, mainly focused on New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia. Um, and uh, we think um, uh, those securities have been very cheap. We think the RBA will likely do uh, or launch something known as quantitative easing next month, which means buying government bonds, including state government bonds. Mm. And we think given that um, the performance of those bonds will be uh, quite robust. Um, and that's certainly what's happened um, since we started buying those securities in August. Um, and in fact, in October, we're having one of our strongest months on record to date, um, partly because uh, we've seen very good performance out of those securities. And is that because you focus only on the bank bonds because of the credit rating or is it because of the regulation and, and the APRA kind of reporting that they have to do as well? Like you haven't drifted into corporate bonds or as you were saying, high yield? Yeah, so that's a very, very interesting question. Um, <clears throat> so we, um, just to abstract away a little, we have the ability to buy and sell any investment grade corporate bond, bank bond or government bond. So we actually have a lot of freedom and flexibility in our portfolios. But philosophically, our principle is we only want to hold businesses that are basically too big to fail. Businesses that in any recession are not going to remotely come close to defaulting on their debts. 
um, businesses that are ideally government guaranteed or implicitly government guaranteed. So we do actually invest in corporate bonds occasionally. Uh, in the last 12 months, we've held Woolworths senior bonds. And Woolworths is a good example of a, uh, a very, very strong oligopolist or a duopolist, arguably, with Coles. Um, we've also held Coles senior bonds. We've held things like Singtel Optus's senior bonds. Um, in the past, we've held Apple. Uh, but in the main, uh, we don't hold corporate bonds. We just uh, enter that market when we uh, see mispricing that mean we're going to get capital gains from the bonds. Uh, in our portfolios, we're really focused on generating capital gains, not yield. In fixed income, the best proxy for risk is yield. You see a fund with a higher yield, that's generally going to be uh, compensation for more risk-taking. And the normal paradigm in fixed income is you uh, chase risk in order to get a better yield. And the th three big risks you can chase, are the risk of a um, bond issuer defaulting, so credit risk, um, the risk associated with being stuck in a bond and not being able to trade it, or liquidity risk. Yeah. And the first, uh, sorry, the, the, the other third uh, major risk is um, interest rate volatility risk. So if you invest in a five-year term deposit and you fix your interest rate today, let's just say at 1%. 0.8. 0.8. Or maybe you're getting one. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and let's say for whatever reason, the RBA has you know, been lying to us of late and they, they, lift, they normalise the cash rate back to about 3.5% uh, at some point over the next five years. Well, you will have done really badly on that 0.8% that TD fixed for five years. Um, and if you actually tried to trade it or sell it, you'd have to accept less than 100 cents in the dollar. So that's the way a fixed rate bond works. If, if your outside interest rates go up and you fix your interest, then the bond price is going to fall so that any buyer of that bond is going to be indifferent between uh, another bond paying a higher interest rate and the bond that you're trying to sell that um, has, a, has a, a lower coupon but has a higher yield because the price has fallen to make the yield the same as external interest rates. Um, is that a good segue uh, into how you so the bonds you're buying offer you know 10-year government bonds are like what's 0.7, 0.8%, but you're delivering double that over the over the cash rate. Yeah, um, so the the um, the bonds that we're uh, purchasing in the semi-government space are probably you know, paying anywhere from 0.5 to sort of 1.3%, but we're not there for the yield. As I mentioned, we're looking for the capital gains. So, and we've actually got tremendous capital gains over the last three months on those securities. And the way we can get a capital gain is, um, and, and this is really the, the focus of our process, we, we take all of our internal capabilities. So the 25 staff, the 13 analysts, the four PhDs, we use up to 30 to 40 quantitative models that we've built in-house to value every bond globally. And what we're looking for is mispricings, basically bonds that are paying too much interest for their risk and that bonds that will uh, appreciate in price over time. Um, and, and typically we find that those mispricings disappear over about three months. Uh, so the, the interest rate normalizes or it sort of mean reverts back to fair value over that period. As that, that interest rate does normalize, the price of the bond rises. So it's kind of like, I think for the late listener, it's kind of like, Imagine that Ubank has a, an incredible term deposit rate. They're offering 1.5% for six-month money. Now, they'll do that because they want to attract funds, but they'll only hold out that special for, say, a period of time. Um, and let's just say, you know, whatever, three months. They get the money they want. You buy the 1.5% TD. And, and just imagine that you could actually sell it. So you could trade it. Uh, and you could sell it to your, your best mate or your next-door neighbour 
um, not on a 1.5% interest rate, but on a 1% interest rate. Well, if they're buying at a, a much lower interest rate because Eubank's pulled the, the special and now the you know, typical uh, six-month TD rate is like 0.5% and you've got a, a TD paying 1.5%, if he's willing to buy it off you at a 1% uh, interest rate, he's going to pay you more than 100 cents in the dollar. You actually get a capital gain. And that's what we do. Um, and that's a much safer, more secure, consistent way to generate returns than just chasing risk. So coming back to your question about corporate bonds, uh, we're focusing on businesses that are too big to fail, that basically don't have any credit risk, and they tend to have high credit ratings. So your intuition about the banks, yes, because the banks are partly government guaranteed, they benefit from high credit ratings, their bonds tend to be much more liquid. So in the month of March, I bought and sold over a billion dollars of bonds. Now, you know what we saw in March is a lot of fixed income managers had no liquidity. Their assets mm. are frozen. Now, there'll be lots of, you heard lots of complaints and explanations and I think rhetoric around why there was no liquidity, but I had lots of liquidity. We were trading a billion dollars worth of bonds in that month. Um, and there's a simple explanation as to why those portfolios had no liquidity. And that's because if you own bonds issued by companies that are going to perform bad in, badly in a recession, you're not going to find a bid for those securities, right, in a recession. So we're in a recession in March, and guess what? Nobody okay. wanted to buy Virgin senior bonds, right, which ended up being worthless because Virgin actually defaulted on those bonds. Nobody mm. wanted to buy David Jones bonds. Mm. Nobody wanted to buy bonds issued by subprime non-bank lenders like Pepper or Latrobe, you know, on the basis that riskier borrowers have higher probabilities of default in a recession. And nobody wanted to buy bonds issued by commercial property investors because the whole commercial property market was screwed. Yep. Uh, you know, obviously, no one was paying uh, rents. Tenancies uh, uh, were getting hard to fill because business models were disaggregating the whole Zoom phenomenon that we're capitalizing on right now that means that people don't need as much office space as perhaps they once did in the past. Uh, we didn't have those problems because we actually sold all our corporate bonds in uh, January ahead of the COVID crisis. Uh, we radically de-risked our portfolios. In fact, in the month of January, I sold more bonds than I ever have in the last decade. Uh, we sold about 1.14 billion in the month of January. And then, and, and credit spreads at that time were very tight. So, you know, our market, it looked quite expensive. And then in the month of March, credit spreads exploded. We saw spreads move to their highest levels ever recorded, worse than in the GFC. And that's why uh, in March, we bought a lot. I bought about um, $867 million in the month of March. How does that, um, <clears throat> sorry, I'll keep taking all the questions, Jamie. How does that liquidity yeah, yeah, yeah. work? Are you, I think you are explaining to us, basically, there's no ASX for, for most of the bonds. You're just calling every other manager and seeing one if you could sell and one if you could buy. Um, well, the way it actually works is um, you have market makers, which are generally banks or brokerages. And they, as a, they act as an intermediaries between the buyers and the sellers. Yep. And the participants of the bond, in the bond market will be fixed income funds. There'll be super funds. There'll be offshore central banks, offshore fund managers, um, uh, you know, insurers. There's quite a range of uh, potential investor cohorts. Also, you know, retail investors, mid-market investors, private banks, high net worths, family offices, councils, and so on. Um, and so we trade with a very, very large number of banks and brokerages globally. Um, and so we have access to all of their counterparties and therefore all of their liquidity. Uh, and so what we'll do if we want to trade is we'll go to those counterparties and say, listen, where's your market in these bonds? Uh, and then we'll try and find the best price to execute. Um, but we generally are um, very active. So it's, you know, in the year to date in, in 2020, I've bought and sold 
uh, almost $19 billion over the last uh, 10 months. So we are transacting about $100 million a day. And we're typically trading about 7070 times a day. Uh, we do trade on the ASX as well because we're very active in the hybrid market for some portfolios. Um, some of our portfolios aren't allowed to invest in hybrids. Uh, and then we're quite active in the, um, the unlisted bond market. But most of our trading by size will be in the, the, the traditional over-the-counter bond market. Not much of our trading, about or less than 10% of our trading is actually in hybrids. So, Chris, uh, we haven't written this question down, but <clears throat> for, for a lot of investors and potential investors, uh, clients of Waddle Partners, one of the alternatives that they get pushed to them by you know, other groups is a index option, a you know, composite bond index option. It's relatively cheap, you know, 20, 30 basis points. For us, we see risk all over that, and we've probably seen risk all over it for too long. But you know, we, we don't think that the coupon that you would get paid is for the potential risk um, first holding how, how the structure of the portfolio is. You know, the, the the company with the most amount of debt is the biggest portion of the of the index fund, and then the the average duration is closer to six or six and a half years. So you know, we see risk in potentially interest rates increasing, and potentially people. Uh, that invested in that index fund getting effectively hurt in terms of capital. Is, do you share that view or do you have a different view? Yeah, I mean, I'm generally sympathetic to that view. We've argued that the um, global financial crisis, which really resulted in the unveiling of this idea that uh, central banks can buy things, bonds to bid up their prices uh, and to lower their cost of capital, to lower interest rates. So, a central bank normally controls the overnight cash rate. Uh, that's what the RBA does. And that's kind of like an overnight um, bank deposit rate. Uh, and then over time, as those overnight cash rates have come down to zero, which is known as the effective lower bound, the central banks have started to say to themselves, well, we need to influence other interest rates. So rather than just the overnight rate, we want to change, we want to put downward pressure on the three-year interest rate, the five-year interest rate, the 10-year interest rate. To do that, they need to buy bonds. And this mm. is what the RBA is likely to do in November. So the RBA has already moved to buying, buying bonds around the three-year uh, government bond yield, or effectively what is known as the three-year risk-free rate. Uh, and for many months, we've thought that they will go further out the curve and seek to put downward pressure on the 10-year government bond yield. Um, and, and when central banks do this, so they, so they embark on this QE and they start buying all manner of assets um, and they start printing money in order to do that, our view has been that ultimately this ends in inflation. So it's actually actually becomes, because you're not fixing the money supply, you're increasing the quantity of money. Yep. Uh, and uh, the history of money suggests that this um, uh, pattern of behavior ultimately becomes quite inflationary. Now, the GFC was a deflationary shock. COVID-19 was a deflationary shock. But my view is that over uh, the next five to 15 years, at some point, we're gonna see a big increase in inflation. If that's the case, you don't want to have what is called interest rate duration, which is basically the risk of holding long-dated bonds that have fixed interest rates rather than floating interest rates. Because as we discussed earlier, if inflation comes and long-term interest rates start to creep up because the market thinks the central banks eventually will have to increase interest rates uh, at the short end or the overnight cash rate, um, then the value of those bonds will fall. So duration... Um, is a, a risky thing to hold in a portfolio. And in, in our three strategies that you guys use, we're quite unusual 
because we actually calibrate our portfolio duration at zero years. So normally a fixed income manager that is a short duration manager will, will have about one to two years worth of interest rate risk. We actually have zero years interest rate risk. Um, and that means in months where yields start rising <clears throat> and you see that composite bond index, which is only fixed rate bonds, there are no floating rate bonds in that index with a, an average tenor or maturity of circa six years, that will perform abysmally, abysmally. So it'll be down one to 2% in a bad month when, when long-term rates start rising. And, and our portfolios will likely outperform in those scenarios. Having said that, we do actually run something called um, an active composite bond strategy. Um, now, this is a product we only run for super funds, but we are making it publicly available soon. Uh, and it is benchmarked against the composite bond index. And we have beaten that index by 190 basis points or 1.9% um, before free fees over the last eight years. In the last 12 months, we've beaten the index by 2.96% or almost three percentage points or 300 basis points. Um, but that's an active fees. bond fund, right? Yeah, that that's active. So that basically takes our active trading style yep. and we fix the duration of our portfolio to the index duration. So we're not going active uh, on, on our interest rate risk. We're just holding it at the index level. And yep. then we beat the index through our, um, our trading and our ability, ability to find mispriced bonds mm. that are paying too much interest that will appreciate in price as the credit spread normalizes um, to our target. But I, I do think that the duration in the medium term will be problematic. It's been a very, very good building block in a portfolio for the last 30 years, but it was a very bad building block uh, in a portfolio for basically the price 70 years. So we, I think we're going to a new regime which will be a much, much more inflationary regime. And that will be amplified by things like um, deglobalization. Yep. One of the things we're seeing is a decoupling between the US and Chinese economies, but um, also a decoupling between the Chinese economy, which historically has been the world supply chain, <clears throat> and a lot of Western economies. And we're seeing a process called reshoring. And that means that Western companies are now saying they don't want their supply chain based in China. They want it based locally. You're seeing a huge push uh, amongst Western and liberal democratic nation states um, to locate their critical supply chains domestically. We're seeing this here in Australia. The prime ministers talked about, about it a lot. We're seeing the Japanese pay their companies to bring their supply chains home. I think 75% of all US businesses are thinking about uh, reshoring their supply chains. And what that will mean is you'll likely have um, higher, higher production costs because the reason- You should get that, Chris. <laughs> the reason, the, reason uh, the Chinese have become the supply chain to the world is they had some artificial comparative advantages. They had very, very low labor. wages in their country, so labour costs were very, very low. Uh, and then the state was subsidising uh, with basically free loans or near free loans a lot of the national champion businesses that dominated global supply chains. So the best example of that would be Huawei. You know, Huawei has dominated global uh, telecommunication supply chains and has benefited from really cheap state funding, which meant it could loss lead and undercut other telco providers and disintermediate them from their traditional markets uh, because Ch China wanted to control telecommunications infrastructure. Um, so as that whole process unwinds, you've seen Huawei banned from the NBN and Huawei is being basically booted out of the US, Canadian, uh, UK, and, and now some European markets. You're going to see cost of production increase, the cost of providing goods and services increase uh, at the same time as you see huge fiscal stimuluses globally, some massive budget deficits uh, concurrently or contemporaneously with 
um, massive money printing. All those roads are pointing towards higher inflation, which means you probably don't want duration in portfolios. You want to be floating rate. Uh, you don't want to be fixed rate. Can we turn the conversation now to uh, economic outlook or, or more importantly, residential real estate, where nearly every investor's largest asset class is residential real estate. So everyone is um, is super keen to know about residential real estate and you have quite a contrarian view versus the mainstream press on residential property over the next 12 months. Can you yeah, call it contrarian if it's right? <laughs> No, contrarian. When everyone else is so far wrong, is it still yeah, contrarian? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And the funny thing is that, and this is the bane of my existence, every time we have these sort of iconoclastic or highly contrarian positions, they become the consensus views because yeah. you know, ultimately they get validated. If I can just screen share, I, I'm not sure if you guys, I think you can, uh, you need to make me the host in order to um, uh, be able to do that, but if uh, perhaps your administrator could just allow me to screen share it by making me the host. There we go. Um, and I'm going to show you a chart. Uh, I'll show you a few different things. Um, here's this chart. So, uh, yeah. So can you see that chart? Yep. Yep. Cool. And basically, um, yeah, we did have a contrarian view. So in March, I went onto a podcast, uh, the Jolly Swagman podcast. And basically, you know, we've been fairly public in telling our clients that we thought that the doomsday forecast for Aussie housing that started to materialise in March were, were totally wrong. So basically, you had all the major banks predicting 10 to 20% house price falls. Um, and you had uh, many others, um, including, uh, you know, UBS and Morgan Stanley predicting 15% house price falls. AMP forecast a 20% drop in house prices. SQM were up to 30%. And basically, we had a completely different view. We said that house prices would fall by only zero to negative 5% over a very short six month period. Now at that point in time, we did not anticipate uh, uh, dictator Dan's second wave, right? So the snafu around the quarantining in Victoria, which uh, you know, explains 99% of the COVID infections in Victoria, that wasn't part of our central case. Our central case would be, was that there would be no uh, additional second wave in Australia. And uh, that's been true of seven of the eight states and territories, and also true in New Zealand. Um, and then we argued that after that zero to negative 5% correction, the market would start turning in circa September. Um, and basically that's exactly what's happened. So uh, in the period since the market peaked in April, uh, house prices have fallen uh, nationally only 2.8%, right in the midpoint of our forecast range. And we started to see house prices rise across six of the eight capitals in September. So in the month of September, house prices rose in Perth, Canberra, Hobart, across all non-metro regional markets, in Brisbane, in Adelaide, and in Darwin. The falls in Sydney were very small, only negative 0.3%. The one laggard was our southern brothers and sisters, obviously Melbourne, uh, which continues to tank, unfortunately. But even in the Melbourne market, we're now starting to see some stability. So in October, we're seeing house prices in Sydney now rising we're continuing to see very strong auction clearance rates. So over the weekend, the Sydney auction clearance rate, the preliminary number was 82% um, in uh, Canberra. I think it was around 85%. In Adelaide, it was 88%. But what was really encouraging was that in um, Sydney, uh, sorry, sorry, in Melbourne, the auction clearance rate was in the, I think, the low 70s on pretty good volumes for the, the, you know, the, the, the first or second week that the markets, the auction market is started to open back up in Melbourne. Mm. Um, after this turning point in September, we forecast that we would get 
at least 10 to 20% capital growth. Now, we have a long track record of, of getting these cycles right. I wrote a report, a 380-page report on housing for Prime Minister John Howden in 2003. And I led the team that developed the CoreLogic house price indices that the RBA uses. <clears throat> um, and we got the 2008 correction right. We got the 2012 to 2017 boom right. In 2017, we were the first analysts to say the boom was over and house prices would fall 10%, which they did. And then April last year, we were the first analysts, whilst prices were still falling, uh, to say that the, the bus was over and that the prices would boom another 10%, which is exactly what they did in the period between June last year and April this year. Prices nationally were up 10%. Um, the RBA's research shows that a 1% drop in mortgage rates as of January 2019 would propagate a 28% increase in house prices. And that was basically our view that this cycle would, would get 10 to 20%, sorry, 20 to 30% capital growth this cycle. That's what we're expecting. So we got 10% between uh, mid-19 and April 20. We then pulled back 3%. So we're potentially owed up to another 23 percentage points. Conservatively, we're um, saying uh, we're looking for at least 10 to 20% capital gains now. I'm very, very bullish resi. Uh, and that's why that's one of my greatest recent regrets, not... not kind of um, putting a little bit of excess cash into um, some 10 times labor resi through a, you know, a 10% so, deposit and a 90% home loan. And does responsible lending laws play into that as well? So you're saying cheaper cheaper mortgages allow people to... There's, there's actually a bunch of stuff that pay, plays into that. We've seen fixed rate mortgages come down 150 basis points. We've seen actually household incomes rise, not fall strongly because of the huge fiscal uh, stimulus that ScoMo and Josh Frydenberg have um, bequeathed on the country. So we've got one of the most generous fiscal stimulus programs of any country, uh, any developed country in the world. So we've actually seen a big increase in purchasing power. Uh, we are now seeing the advent of positive gearing. So you can get gross rental yields quite comfortably on apartments of 5% or more around the country. Um, and you know, you're paying two and a half percent on a mortgage. So you're not, you're not having, we're not seeing negative gearing, we're actually seeing positive gearing for the first time in a very long time. We're seeing massive demand from Asian buyers and expats returning. Um, contrary to claims, <laughs> there's no population growth. Uh, what is not in the population numbers is that 480,000 Australians have returned from overseas as a result of COVID, which is wow. a huge boost to the population. Mm. And there's probably a large number waiting to return. Um, <clears throat> and then if you think about net overseas migration, the government's sort of talking this down, but I think what you're going to see is a massive boom in net overseas migration over the next five years. Because basically, if you're living in Taiwan, Hong Kong, mainland China, in the UK, Europe, or the US, <laughs> attractive right, Australia right now is one of the most attractive um, you know, destinations in the world for a whole bunch of reasons. Political mm. stability, health, uh, the physical amenities, the economy, commodity prices are high. I mean, we have a lot to be very, very excited about. Um, there was an example in Sydney, in my suburb, Vaucluse. A property went to market a few weeks ago to auction. The reserve was 14.6 million. Above that, they would have traded it. It sold for 24.6 million to a Chinese buyer. Mm. 22 of the 25 contracts were Chinese buyers. Mm. Uh, agents are telling me they're doing Zoom inspections with Chinese buyers. So, you know, watch this space. Um, and so we shouldn't be too worried about JobKeeper finishing in March or April? Everyone said to me, oh, what about the September JobKeeper cliff? I was like, dudes, it's not going to be a problem. Don't worry about JobKeeper. Look at the radical reduction um, in the number of people on repayment holidays on bank balance sheets. I mean, in the last, between August and October, there's been a huge drop. Um, I think the numbers were for CBA, 
that 28% of their SME borrowers were on repayment holidays in August. And as of October, only 7% were. So, and Bendigo has also, I actually just put this up on my LinkedIn profile, but Bendigo has reported something like a 75% reduction in the number of folks on repayment holidays uh, in certain parts of its uh, balance sheet. So, uh, listen, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the elastic, elasticity and adaptability of the Aussie economy. Whilst we're not getting, um, obviously, foreign tourists, there's a huge boom in domestic tourism. Mm. And more people, more people actually travel uh, from Australia overseas each year than those that travel here each year. So basically, um, I think that the tourism market, once the borders open, can do really, really well. I know mm. that the Queensland border for a New South Welshman is meant to be opening up this Friday. And I'm looking at booking you know, Queensland holidays immediately. I've already booked three restaurants before the end of November. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're, we're quarantining you Victorians. <laughs> no, in, in Victoria. Yeah. We're keeping our borders. It's going to be airtight. <laughs> and, and everyone around me are, are building new swimming pools. So money that would have been Correct. spent offshore is being spent here. Or, or the other phenomenon we've seen in Sydney is buying holiday houses. Mm. But the holiday house market is going gangbusters. But that's because so, you can work from anywhere now, right? It doesn't correct. really matter. You, yeah, you, know, you, you know, I spent my lockdown in Jaroa, which is like two and a half hours out of Sydney, mm. running a 25-person team, no problems. All right, Chris. I sort of had one last question. Sorry, Jamie. All right. <laughs> Some of the world guys. Which, which was how long? Running for 56 minutes. <laughs> how, long do you, how long are rates this low for? So you said that you're going to expect inflation. When do they go up? Because well, I don't think we're going to be worried about inflation. I think it'll be a slow moving beast. It's a, bit, a little bit like kind of uh, moving uh, or turning a super tanker. And the reality is the jobless rate's high, 6.9%. It might drift up a little bit. Again, our forecast is it'll sort of settle around 6 to 7 which has been true thus far. Um, but, but it's going to take a long time to get wage inflation running again, which will really need to see the jobless rate below 5%. Um, so I think it's years away, and I think any rate changes are years away. I also think that the RBA and the Fed and other central banks are going to tolerate higher levels of inflation for a period of time. So it's not like we're going to hit uh, 2% and they're like, oh, we're going to lift rates. And actually the very erudite governor of the RBA, Philip Lowe, has... Um, said that they're not going to change rates based on their forecasts. They're only going to lift rates when they actually see the whites of inflation mm. in the actual data settling comfortably in the midpoint of their target band, which is 2 to 3%. So I, think, I think we're several years away. I think rates will remain low for long. Okay, Chris, uh, thank you very much for the last hour. You did ask to, for us to keep it short so you can go and trade some bonds, <laughs> but we, we've successfully saved you two minutes. Um, but appreciate you and everything you've done for our clients and managing capital and spending the last hour on this call and all the calls you do with Drew and I throughout the year. So thanks, well, Chris. Can I, say, can I say, guys, I mean, you, you, you guys do a great job. Uh, very, very... Um, impressive team at Wattle. Obviously, I know a lot about the business. Um, the founder of the business, uh, his daughter, Mel Donnelly, is actually the chair of Coolbar Capital. Uh, and Melda was uh, formerly CEO of QIC in Queensland. And I think she was uh, uh, director of both Uni Super and VR, VFMC. And she's also a Victorian. Uh, you know, I, I would like to just say for the record that, um, you know, I feel very Victorian myself. I went to school at Geelong Grammar uh, for my sins uh, out in Corio. Uh, that, that lovely destination. 
and go the cats. Um, you know, obviously we pity their plight. Uh, we have four analysts, as I mentioned, based in Melbourne. Um, and I was also, of course, and I'm sure you're aware of this, the uh, vice captain of the 1994 uh, Victorian schoolboys under 18, first 15 rugby team. Uh, I was a uh, barrel-chested, rampaging hooker in the front row. Um, awesome. bit, of a, bit of a big rig. So I have uh, very much uh, Victorian heritage flowing through my veins. The other thing I'd just like to say to your um, viewers is, you know, it's very humbling for us to meet you guys. I've met a lot of you in person um, and I'm always blown away by uh, the interest and um, uh, wisdom and knowledge that you bring to bear when we engage with you. So it really is, again, very, very humbling uh, to be a servant uh, in the context of your savings. And the next session could be on drones. <laughs> we haven't even talked about my, my shark <laughs> tracking. Call my capital, I'll just give that a plug. Two plugs, <clears throat> go to our podcast. Uh, the, we have a podcast, <clears throat> Complexity Premier, that you can uh, listen to uh, and, and, and hear myself and Ying Yi um, <clears throat> uh, discuss topics of the day each month. But more significantly, <clears throat> in our spare time, Kulaba uh, runs a search and rescue uh, drone surveillance capability uh, where we are flying off Sydney's beaches looking for um, uh, uh, great white sharks and other uh, beasts, bronze whalers, uh, bull sharks, anyone that is uh, threatening the population. You may be aware, some of you, that um, I think I was the first person in the history of humanity to use a drone with a live speaker system to thwart a shark attack. So the very first video on the, if you go to Coolabar Capital Drone, if you Google that, you'll see the Coolabar Capital Search and Rescue uh, Drone uh, site on YouTube. So we have a dedicated YouTube page. And the first vi video is taken at Werry Beach in New South Wales. And you can see this monster of a, of a juvenile great white, probably about four meters in size, um, circling a surfer and then barreling towards him. And then I warn the surfer, surfer you can't actually hear the, um, the audio, but anyway, I warn the surfer through the speaker system and he gets the fright of his life because he hears my voice from, uh, I was obviously situated a long way away, uh, screaming at him, shark, 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 evacuate the water immediately, shark, shark, shark. <laughs> So he gets the fright of his life because obviously he couldn't hear the, like, you don't actually the, shark, hear the drone, yeah. or you hear is the voice. So he's like, oh my God, he whips the board around. And then that, that motion of whipping his board around actually shocked, shocked the shark as it was you know, meters away from chomping this guy. And the shark bolted. Um, so, you know, he obviously owes me his life. Uh, but this, this video went completely viral. It went all over the world. It was on CNN, Fox, BBC, um, the BBC contacted me and said we wanted to. They wanted to run a um, an episode of a series they were running on uh, real life heroes on uh, <laughs> on, on our, uh, our shark tracking system. So obviously this is just a part time job, um, but hopefully it humanises the the Coolabar Capital team for you. It's excellent. Thanks again, Chris. Really appreciate it. Thanks, fellas. Uh and for the listeners, uh, please join us next week. We'll be talking with ETF Securities about physical gold. So please join us then. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Drew. Cheers. Thanks.